You're listening to KZOM, Oleander Public Radio. Recording by Mike Harris. Astounding Story 16, April 1931, by Various. Hell's Dimension by Tom Curry, Part 1. Now, Professor Lambert, tell us what you've done with the body of your assistant, Miss Madge Crawford. Her car is outside your door, has stood there since yesterday morning. There are no footprints leading away from the house, and you can't expect us to believe that an airplane picked her off the roof. It will make it a lot easier if you tell us where she is. Her parents are greatly worried about her. When they telephoned, you refused to talk to them, and would not allow them to speak to Miss Crawford. They are alarmed as to her fate. While you are not the sort of man that would injure a young woman, still, things look bad for you. You had better explain fully. John Lambert, a man of about thirty-six, tall, spare, with black hair which was slightly tinged with grey at the temples, in spite of his youth, turned large eyes which were filled with agony upon his questions. Lambert was already internationally famous for his unique and astounding experiments in the realm of sound and rhythm. He had been endowed by one of the great electrical companies to do original work, and his laboratory, in which he lived, was situated in a large tract of isolated woodland some forty miles from New York City. It was necessary for the success of his work that as few disturbing noises as possible be made in the neighbourhood. Many of his experiments with sound and etheric waves required absolute quiet and freedom from interrupting noises. The delicate nature of some of the machines he used would not tolerate so much as the footstep of a man within a hundred yards, and a passing car would have disrupted them entirely. Lambert was terribly nervous. He trembled under the gaze of the stern detective, come with several colleagues from a neighbouring town, at the call of Madge Crawford's frightened family. The girl, whose picture stood on a working table nearby, looked at them from the photograph as a beautiful young woman of twenty-five, light of hair with large eyes and a lovely face. Detective Phillips pointed dramatically at the likeness of the missing girl. Can you, he said, look at her there and deny you loved her? And if she did not love you in return, then we have a motive for what you have done. Jealousy. Come, tell us what you have done with her. Our men will find her anyway. They are searching the cellar for her now. You can't hope to keep her alive. And if she is dead... Lambert uttered a cry of despair and put his face in his long fingers. She... she... don't say she's dead. Then you did love her, exclaimed Phillips triumphantly, and exchanged glances with his companions. Of course I love her, and she returned my love. We were secretly engaged, and we were to be married when we had finished these extremely important experiments. It is infamous, though, to have accused me of having killed her. If I have done so, then it was no fault of mine. Then you did kill her. No, no, I cannot believe she is really gone. Why did you evade her parents' inquiries? Because I've been trying to bring her 
to rematerialize her. You mean to bring her back to life? Yes. Couldn't a doctor do that better than you? If she is hidden somewhere about here? Asked Phillips gravely. No, no, you do not understand. She cannot be seen. She is dematerialized. Oh, go away. I'm the only man, save possibly my friend Dr. Morgan, who can help her now. And Morgan, I've thought of calling him, but I've been working every instant to get the right combination. Go away, for God's sake. We can't go away until we have found out Miss Crawford's fate, said Phillips patiently. Another sleuth entered the immense laboratory. He made his way through the myriad strange machines. A weird collection of xylophones, gongs, stone slabs cut in peculiar patterns to produce odd rhythmic sounds, electrical apparatus of all sorts. Near Phillips was a plate some feet square of heavy metal, raised from the floor on poles of a different substance. About the ceiling were studs thickly set of the same sort of metal as was the big plate. One of the sleuths tapped his forehead, pointing to Lambert, as the latter nervously lit a cigarette. The newcomer reported to Phillips. He held in his hand two or three sheets of paper, on which something was written. The only other person here is a deaf-mute, said the sleuth to Phillips, his superior. I've got his story. He writes that he takes care of things, cooks their meals and so on. And he writes further that he thinks the woman and this guy Lambert were in love with each other. He has no idea where she has gone to. Here, you read it. Phillips took the sheets and continued. Yesterday morning, at about ten o'clock, I was passing the door of the laboratory, on my way to make up Professor Lambert's bed. Suddenly I noticed a queer, shimmering, greenish-blue light streaming down the walls and ceiling of the laboratory. I was right outside the place, and though I cannot hear anything, I was knocked down, and I twisted and wriggled around like a snake. It felt like something with a thousand little paws, but with great strength was pushing me every way. When there was a lull, and the light had stopped for a few moments, I staggered to my feet, and ran madly for my own quarters, scared out of my head. As I went by the kitchen, I saw Miss Crawford at the sink there, filling some vases and arranging flowers, as she usually did every morning. If she called to me, I did not hear her, or notice her lips moving. I believe she came to the door. I was going to quit when I recovered myself, angry at what had occurred. But then I began to feel ashamed for being such a baby, for Professor Lambert had been very good to me. About fifty minutes after I went to my room, I was able to return to the kitchen. Miss Crawford was not there, though the flowers and vases were. Then, as I started to work, still a little alarmed, Professor Lambert came rushing into the kitchen, an expression of terror on his face. His mouth was open, and I think he was calling. He then ran out back to the laboratory, and I have not seen Miss Madge since. Professor Lambert has been almost continuously in the workroom since then, and I kept away from it because I was afraid. Two more members of Philip's squad broke into the laboratory and came toward the chief. They had been working at physical labour, 
but they were still perspiring, and one regarded his hands with a rueful expression. Any luck? asked Phillips eagerly. No, boss. We've been all over the place, and we dug every spot we could get to earth in the cellar. Most of it's three-inch concrete, without a sign of a break. Did you look in the furnace? We looked there the first thing. She ain't there. There were several closets in the laboratory, and Phillips opened all of them and inspected them. As he moved near the big plate, Lambert uttered a cry of warning. Don't disturb that. Don't touch anything near it. All right, all right, said Phillips testily. The sceptical sleuths had classified Lambert as a nut, and were practically sure he had done away with Madge Crawford because she would not marry him. Still, they needed better evidence than their mere beliefs. There was no corpus delecti, for instance. Gentlemen, said Lambert at last, controlling his emotions with a great effort. I will admit to you that I am in trepidation and a state of mental torture as to Miss Crawford's fate. You are delaying matters, keeping me from my work. He thinks about work when the girl he claims he loves has disappeared, said Doherty in a loud whisper to Phillips. Doherty was one of the sleuths who had been digging in the cellar, and the hard work had made his temper short. "'You must help us to find Miss Crawford before we can let you alone,' said Phillips. "'Can't you understand that you are under grave suspicion of having injured her, hidden her away? "'This is a serious matter, Professor Lambert. Your experiments can wait.' "'This one cannot,' shouted Lambert, shaking his fists. "'You are fools!' Steady now, said Doherty. Perhaps you had better come with us to the district attorney's office, went on Phillips. There you may come to your senses and realize the futility of trying to cover up your crime, if you have committed one. If you have not, why do you not tell us where Miss Crawford is? Because I do not know myself, replied Lambert. But you can't take me away from here. I beg of you, gentlemen. Allow me a little more time. I must have it. Philip shook his head. Not unless you tell us logically what has occurred, he said. Then I must, though I do not think you will comprehend or even believe me. Briefly, it is this. Yesterday morning I was working on the final series of experiments with a new type of harmonic overtones plus a new type of sinusoidal current, which I had arranged with a series of selenium cells. When I finally threw the switch, remember, I was many weeks preparing the apparatus, and had just put the final touches on early that morning. There was a sound such as never had been heard before by human ears, an indescribable sound, terrifying and mysterious. Also, there was a fierce, devouring, verdita blue light, and this came from the plates and the studs, you see. But so great was its strength that it got out of control and leaped about the room like a live thing. For some moments, while it increased in intensity as I raised the power of the current by means of the switch I held in my hand, I watched and listened in fascination. My instruments had ceased to record, though they are the most delicate ever invented and can handle almost anything which man can even surmise. Perspiration was pouring from Lambert's face as he recounted his story. The detectives listened, comprehending but a little of the meaning of the scientist's words. "'What has this to do with Miss Crawford?' asked Doherty impatiently. Phillips held up his hand to silence the other sleuth, 
Let him finish, he ordered. Go on, Professor. The sensations which I was undergoing became unendurable, went on Lambert in a low, hoarse voice. I was forced to cry out in pain and confusion. Miss Crawford evidently heard my call, for a few moments later, just as the terrific unknown force reached its apex, she dashed into the laboratory and stepped across the plate you see there. I was powerless. Though I shut off the current by a superhuman effort, she... she was gone. Lambert put his face in his hands, and a sob shook his broad shoulders. Gone? repeated Phillips. What do you mean, gone? She disappeared before my very eyes, said the professor shakily, torn into nothingness by the fierce force of the current or sound. Since then, I have been trying to reproduce the conditions of the experiment, for I wish to bring her back. If I cannot do so, then I want to join her wherever she has gone. I love her. I know that I cannot possibly live without her. Will you please leave me alone now, so that I can continue? Doherty laughed derisively. What a story, he jeered. Keep quiet, Doherty, ordered Phillips. Now, Professor Lambert, your explanation of Miss Crawford's disappearance does not sound logical to us. But still, we are willing to give you every chance to bring her back if what you say is true. We cannot leave you entirely alone, because you may try to escape or you might carry out your threat of suicide. Therefore, I am going to sit over there in the corner, quietly, where I can watch you, but will not interfere with your work. We will give you until midnight to prove your story. Then you must go with us to the district attorney. Do you agree to that? Lambert nodded eagerly. I agree. Let me work in peace, and if I do not succeed, then you may take me anywhere you wish, if you can. He added in an undertone. Devitt and the others, at Philip's orders, filed from the laboratory. One more thing, Professor, said Phillips, when they were alone and the Professor was preparing to work. How do you explain the fact, if your story is true, that Miss Crawford was killed and made to disappear, while you yourself, close by, were uninjured? Do you see these garments? asked Lambert, indicating some black clothes which lay on a bench nearby. They insulated me from the current, and partially protected me from the sound. Though the force was very great, great enough to penetrate my insulation, it was handicapped in my case because of the garments. I see. Well, you may go on. Phillips moved in the chair he had taken from time to time. He could hear the noises of his men still searching the premises for Madge Crawford, and Professor Lambert heard them too. Will you tell your men to be quiet? He cried at last. There were dark circles under Lambert's eyes. He was working in a state of feverish anxiety. When the girl he loved had dematerialised from under his very eyes, panic had seized him. He had ripped away wires to break the current and lost the thread of his experiment so that he could not reproduce it exactly without much labour. The scientist put on the black robes and Phillips wished he too had some protective armour even though he did believe that Lambert had told them a parcel of lies. The deaf-mute's story was not too reassuring. Phillips warned his companions to be more quiet, and he himself sat quite still. 
Lambert knew that the sleuth thought he was stark mad. He was aware of the fact that he had but a few hours in which to save the girl who had come at his cry to help him, who had loved him and whom he loved, only to be torn into some place unknown by the forces which were released in his experiment, and he knew he would rather die with her than live without her. He laboured feverishly, though he tried to keep his brain calm in order to win. His notes helped him up to a certain point, but when he had made the final touches, he had not had time to bring the data up to the moment, being eager to test out his apparatus. It was while testing that the awful event had occurred, and he had seen Madge Crawford disappear before his very eyes. Her eyes, large and frightened, burned in his mind. The deaf-mute Felix, a small, spare man of about fifty, sent the professor some food and coffee through one of the sleuths. Lambert swallowed the coffee, but waved away the rest impatiently. Phillips, watching his suspect constantly, was served a light supper at the end of the afternoon. There seemed to be a million wires to be touched, tested, and various strange apparatus. Several times later on in the evening, Lambert threw the big switch with an air of expectancy, but little happened. Then Lambert would go to work again, testing, testing, adjusting this and that, till Philip swore under his breath. Only an hour or more, Professor, said Phillips, who was bored to death and cramped from trying to obey the Professor's orders to keep still. A circle of cigarette ends surrounded the sleuth. Only an hour, agreed Lambert. Will you please be quiet, my man? This is a matter of my fiancé's life or death. Phillips was somewhat disgruntled for he felt he had done Lambert quite a favour in allowing him to remain in the laboratory for so long, to prove his story. "'I wish Dr Morgan was here. I ought to have sent for him, I suppose,' said Lambert, a few minutes later. "'Will you allow me to get him? I cannot seem to perfect this last stage.' "'No time now,' declared Phillips. "'I said till midnight.' It was obvious to Lambert that the detective had become certain during the course of the evening that the scientist was mad. The ceaseless fiddling and the lack of results, or even spectacular sights, had convinced Phillips that he had to do with a crank. "'I think I have it now,' said Lambert coolly. "'What?' asked Phillips. "'The original combination. I had forgotten one detail in the excitement, and this threw me off. Now I believe I will succeed.' in one way or another. I warn you, be careful. I am about to release forces which may get out of my control. Well, now, don't get reckless, begged Phillips nervously. The array of machines had impressed him, even if Lambert did seem a fool. You insist upon remaining, so it is your own risk, said Lambert coolly. Lambert, in the strange robes, was a bizarre figure, the hood was thrown back, exposing his pale, black-bearded face, the wan eyes with dark circles under them, and the twitching lips. "'If you find yourself leaving this veil of tears,' went on the scientist, ironically, to the sleuth, "'you will at least have the comfort of realising that as the sound force disintegrates your mortal form, you are among the first of men to be attuned to the vibrations of the unknown sound world. "'All matter is vibration. This has been proven.' A building of bricks, if shaken in the right manner, falls into its component parts. 
a bridge crossed by soldiers in certain rhythmic time is torn from its moorings a tuning fork receiving the sound vibrations from one of a similar size and shape begins to vibrate in turn these are homely analogies but applied to the less familiar sound vibrations which make up our atomic world they may help you to understand how the terrific forces i have discovered can disintegrate flesh the scientist looked inquiringly at phillips as the sleuth did not move but sat with folded arms lambert shrugged and said i am ready lambert raised his hood and phillips said in a spirit of bravado you can't scare me out of here here goes the switch cried lambert he made the contact as he had before he stood for a moment and this time the current gained force the experimenter pushed his lever all the way over End of part one of Hell's Dimension by Tom Curry Recording by Mike Harris Astounding Stories 16 April 1931 by Various Hell's Dimension by Tom Curry Part two A terrible greenish-blue light suddenly illuminated the laboratory, and through the air came sound vibrations, which seemed to tear at Phillips's body. He found himself on the floor, knocked from his chair, and he writhed this way and that, speechless, suffering a torment of agony. His whole flesh seemed to tremble in unison with the waves, which emanated from the machines which Lambert manipulated. After what seemed hours to the suffering sleuth, the force diminished, and soon Phillips was able to rise. Trembling, the detective cursed and yelled for help in a high-pitched voice. Lambert had thrown back his hood and was rocking to and fro in agony. Madge, Madge, he cried. What have I done? Come back to me. Come back. Dowett and the others came running in at their chief shouts. Arrest him, ordered Phillips shakily. I've stood enough of this nonsense. The detective started for Lambert. He saw them coming and swiftly threw off the protective garments he wore. "'Stand back!' he cried, and threw the switch all the way over. The verdita green light smashed through the air, and the queer sound sensation smacked and tore them. Doherty, who had drawn a revolver when he was answering Phillips's cries, fired the gun into the air, and the report seemed to battle with the vibrating ether. Lambert, as he threw the switch, leaped forward and landed on the metal plate under the ceiling studs, in the very centre of the awful disturbance, and unprotected from its force. For a few moments, Lambert felt racking pain, as though something were tearing at his flesh, separating the very atoms. The scientist saw the wriggling figures of the sleuths in various strange positions, but his impressions were confused. His head whirled round and round, and he swayed to and fro, and finally he thought he fell down, or rather, that he had melted, as a lump of sugar dissolves in water. He's gone! Gone! In the heart of nothingness was Lambert, his body torn and racked in a shrieking chaos of sound, and a blinding glare of iridescent light which seemed too much to bear. His last conscious thought was a prayer, that, having failed to bring back his sweetheart, Madge Crawford, he was undergoing a step towards the same destination to which he had sent her.
John Lambert came to with a shudder. But it was not a mortal shudder. He could sense no body. Had no sense of being confined by matter. He was in a strange, chilly place. A twilight region, limitless, without dimensions. Yet he could feel something, in an impersonal way, vaguely indifferent. He had no pain now. He was moving, somehow. He had one impelling desire, and that was to discover Madge Crawford. Perhaps it was this thought which directed his movements. Intent upon finding the girl, if she was indeed in this same strange world that he was, he did not notice for some time, how long he had no way of telling, that there were other beings which tried to impede his progress. But as he grew more accustomed to the unfamiliar sensations he was undergoing, he found his path blocked again and again by queer beings. They were living, without doubt, and had intelligence, and evinced hostility towards him. But they were shapeless, shapeless as amoebas. He heard them in a sort of soundless whisper, and could see them without the use of his eyes. And he shuddered, though he could feel no body in which he might be confined. Still, when he pinched viciously with invisible fingers at the spot where his face should have been, a twinge of pain registered on the vague consciousness, which appeared to be all there was to him. He was not sure of his substance, though he could evidently experience human sensations with his amorphous body. He did not know whether he could see, yet he was dodging this way and that as the beings who occupied this world tried to stop him. They gave him the impression of grey shapes, and in coppery shadows things gleamed and closed in on him. He seemed to hear a cry, and he knew that he was receiving a call for help from Madge Crawford. He tried to run, pushed determinedly towards the spot, impelled by his love for the girl. Now, as he hurried, he occasionally was stopped short by collision with the formless shapes which were all about him. He was hampered by them, for they followed him, making a sound like wind heard in a dream. Whatever medium he was in was evidently thickly inhabited by the hostile beings, who claimed this world as their own. Though he could not actually feel the medium, he could sense it was heavy. He leapt and ran, fighting his way through the increasing hosts, and the roar of their voice impressions increased in his consciousness. Yet there seemed to be nothing, nothing tangible save vagueness. He felt he was in a blind spot in space, a place of no dimensions, no time, where beings abhorred by nature, things which had never developed any dimensional laws, existed. The cry for help struck him, with more force this time. Lambert, whatever form he was in, realised that he was close to the end of his journey to Madge Crawford. He tried to speak, and had the impression that he said something reassuring. He then bumped into some vibrational being which he knew was Madge. His ears could not hear, nor could his flesh feel, but his whole form or cerebrum sensed he held the woman he loved in his arms. And she was speaking to him, in accents of fear, begging him to save her. John, John, you've come at last. They have been torturing me terribly. Save me. Darling Madge, I will do everything I can. Now I have found you, and we are together, and will never part. Can you hear me? I know what you are thinking, and what you wish to say. I can't exactly hear. 
It all seems vague and impossible. Yet I can suffer. They've been hitting me with something that makes me shudder and shake. There. They are at it again. Lambert felt the sensations now, which the girl had made known to him. He felt crowded by grey beings, and his existence was troubled by spasms of pain impressions. He knew Madge was crying out too. He could not comprehend the attacks or guess their meaning, but the situation was unendurable. Anger shook him, and he began to fight furiously, but vaguely. They were closely hemmed in, but when Lambert began to strike out with hands and legs, the beings gave way a little. The scientist tried to shout, and though he could actually hear nothing, the result was gratifying. The formless creatures seemed to scatter and draw back in confusion as he yelled his defiance. They hate that, Madge said to him. I have screamed myself hoarse, and that is why they have not killed me, if I can be killed. I do not believe we can, but they can torture us, replied Lambert. It is an everlasting half-life or quarter-life. And these creatures who call this hell's dimension home have nothing but hatred for us in their consciousness. The inhabitants of the imperfect world had closed in once again, and the sharp instruments of torture they used were being thrust into the invisible bodies of the two humans. Each time Lambert was unable to restrain his cries, for it seemed that he was being torn to pieces by vibrations. He yelled until he could not speak above a whisper or at least until the impressions of the speech he gave forth did not trouble the beings. The two humans, still bound to some extent by their mortal beliefs, were shivied to and fro, and struck and bullied. The creatures seemed to delight in this sport. The two felt they could not die, yet they could suffer terribly. Would this go on through eternity? Was there no release? They were trying to tear Madge away from him. She was fighting them, and Lambert, in a frenzy of rage, made a determined effort to get away with the girl from their tormentors. They retreated before his onslaughts. Drawing Madge after him, Lambert put down his head, or believed he was doing so, and ran as fast as he could at the beings. He bumped into some invisible forms, and was slowed in his rush, but he shouted and flailed about with his arms, and tried to kick. Madge helped by screaming and striking out. They made some distance in this way, or so they thought, and the horrid creatures gave way before them. All about them was the coppery sensation of the medium in which they moved. Lambert, as he became more used to the form he was inhabiting, he began to think he could discern dreadful eyes which stared unblinkingly at the couple. He fought on, and believed they had come to a spot where the beings did not molest them, though they still sensed the things glaring at them. Were they on some invisible eminence, above the reach of these queer creatures? We might as well stop here, for if we try to go farther, we may come to a worse place, said Lambert. They rested there, in temporary peace, together at last. I seem to be happy now, said Madge, clinging close. I feared I would never see you again, John dear. I ran to you when you called out that day, and when I crossed the plate, I was torn and racked and knocked down. When I next experienced sensation, it was in this terrible form. I am becoming more used to it, but I kept crying out for you. The beings, as soon as they discovered my presence, began to torment me. More and more have been collecting, 
and I have a sensation of seeing them as horrible, revolting beasts. Oh, John, I don't think I could have stood it much longer if you hadn't come to me. They were driving me on, 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 ceaselessly torturing me. Curse them, said Lambert. I wish I could really get hold of some of them. Perhaps, Madge, I will be able to think of some escape for us from this hell's dimension. Yes, darling. I could not bear to think that we are eternally damned to exist among these beings, hurt by them and unable to get away. How I wish we were back in the laboratory, at the tea table. How happy we were there. And we will be again, Madge. Lambert was far from feeling hopeful, but he tried to encourage the girl into thinking they might get away. However, he was unable to dissimulate. She felt his anguish for her safety. But I know now that you love me. I can feel it stronger than ever before, John. It seems like a great rock to which I can always cling, your love. It projects me from the hatred that these beasts pour out against us. Since they had no sense of time, they could not tell how long they were allowed to remain unmolested. But in each other's company they were happy, though each one was afraid for the safety of the loved one. They spoke of the mortal life they had lived, and their love. They felt no need of food or water, but clung together in a dimensionless universe held up by love. The lull came to an end at last. There was no change in the coppery vagueness about them, which they sensed as the surrounding ether, but all was changeless, boundless. Lambert, close to Madge Crawford, felt that they were about to be attacked. He had swift, temporary impressions of seeing saucer-like, unblinking eyes, and then hordes of bizarre inhabitants started to climb up to their perch. For a short while Lambert and Madge fought them off, thrusting at them, seeing to push them backward down the intangible slope. The cries which the dematerialised humans uttered also helped to hold the leaders of the attacking army partially in check, but the vast number of beings swept forward. The thrusts of the torture fields they emanated became more and more racking, as the two unfortunates shuddered in horror and pain. The power to demonstrate loud noise was evidently impossible to these creatures, for their only sounds came to Madge Crawford and John Lambert as long, drawn-out, almost unbearable squeaks, mouse-like in character. Perhaps they never had the faculty of speech, since they did not need to communicate with one another. Perhaps they realised that the racket that they could make would hurt them as much as it did their enemies. Lambert, Madge clinging to him, was forced backwards down the slope, and the beings had the advantage of height. He could not again reach the eminence, but the way behind seemed to clear quickly enough, though thrusts were made at him innumerable times with the torture fields. The hordes pushed them backward, and ever back. They were forced on for some distance, as they retreated, the way became easier, and fewer and fewer of the beings impeded the channel along which they moved, though in front of them, and on all sides, above, beneath, they were pressed by the hordes. They are forcing us to some place they want us to go, said Lambert desperately. We can do nothing more, replied the girl. Lambert felt her quiet confidence in him, and that as long as they were together, all was well. Maybe they can kill us, somehow, he said. And now, Lambert felt the way was clear to the rear. 
there was a sudden rush of the creatures, and needle-like fields were impelled viciously into the spaces the two humans occupied. Madge cried out in pain, and Lambert shouted. The throng drew away from them, as suddenly as it had surged forward, and an instant later the pair, clinging together, felt that they were falling, falling, falling. Are you all right, Madge? Yes, John. But he knew she was suffering. How long they fell he did not know, but they stopped at last. No sooner had they come to rest than they were assailed with senses of pain which made both cry out in anguish. There, in the spot where they had been thrust by the hordes, they felt that there was some terrific vibration which racked and tore at their invisible forms continuously, sending them into spasms of sharp misery. They were both forced to give vent to their feelings by loud cries, but they could not command their movements any longer. When they tried to get away, their limbs moved, but they felt that they remained in the same spot. The pain shook every fraction of their souls. We, we are in some pit of hell into which they have thrown us, John, gasped Madge. He knew she was shivering with the torture of the great vibration from which there was no escape, that they were in a prison pit of hell's dimension. I, oh, John, I'm dying. But he was powerless to help her. He suffered as much as she. Yet there was no weakening of his sensations. He was in as much torture as he had been at the start. He knew that they could not die, and could never escape from this misery of hell. Their cries seemed to disturb the vacuum about. Lambert, shivering and shaking with pain, was aware that great eyes, similar to those which they had thought they saw above, were now upon them. Squeaks were impressed upon him, squeaks which expressed disapprobation. There were some of the beings in the pit with them. Madge knew they were there too. She cried out in terror. Will they add to our misery? But the creatures in the vacuum were pinned to the spots they occupied, as were Madge and Lambert. From their squeaks it was evident that they suffered too, and were fellow prisoners of the mortals. Probably the cries we make disturb them, said Lambert. Vibrations to which we and they are not attuned are torture to the form we are in. Evidently the inhabitants of this hell world punish offenders by condemning them to this eternal torture. Why? Why do they treat us so? Perhaps we jarred upon them, hurt them, because we were not of their kind exactly, said Lambert. Perhaps it was just their natural hatred of us as strangers. They did not grow used to the terrible eternity of torments. No, if anything, it grew worse as it went on. Still they could visualise no end to the existence to which they were bound. Throbs of awful intensity rent them, tore them apart myriad times. Yet they still felt as keenly as before and suffered just as much. There was no death for them, no release from the intangible world in which they were. Their fellow prisoners squeaked at them, as though imploring them not to add to the agony by uttering discordant cries. But it was impossible for Madge to keep quiet, and Lambert shouted in anguish from time to time. There seemed no end to it. And yet, after what was eternity to the sufferers, Madge spoke hopefully. Darling John, I, I fear I am going to die. I am growing weaker, 
I can feel the pain very little now. It is all vague, and it's getting less real to me. Goodbye, sweetheart. I love you, and I always will. Lambert uttered a strangled cry. No, no, don't leave me, Madge. He clung to her. Yet she was becoming extremely intangible to him. She was melting away from his embrace, and Lambert felt that he too was weaker, even less real than he had been. He hoped that if it was the end, they would go together. Desperately, he tried to hold her with him, but he had little ability to do so. The torture was racking his consciousness, but was becoming more dreamlike. There was a terrific snap, suddenly, and Lambert lost all consciousness. Water! Water! Lambert, opening his eyes, felt his body writhing about and experienced pain that was mortal. A bluish-green light dazzled his pupils and made him blink. Something cut into his flesh, and Lambert rolled about, trying to escape. He bumped into something, something soft. He clung to this form, and knew that he was holding on to a human being. Then the light died out, and in its stead was the yellow, normal glow of electric lights. Weak, famished, and almost dead of thirst, Lambert looked about him at the familiar sights of his laboratory. He was lying on the floor, close by the metal plate, and at his side, unconscious, but still alive to judge by her rising and falling breast, was Madge Crawford. Someone bent over him, and pressed a glass of water against his lips. He drank, watching while a mortal who Lambert at last realised was Detective Phillips, bathed Madge Crawford's temples with water from a pitcher, and forced a little between her pale, drawn lips. Lambert tried to rise, but he was weak, and required assistance. He was dazed, still, and they sat him down in a chair and allowed him to come too. He shuddered from time to time, for he still thought he could feel the torture which he had been undergoing. But he was worried about Madge, and watched anxiously as Phillips, assisted by another man, worked over the girl. At last, Madge stirred and moaned faintly. They lifted her to the bench, where they gently restored her to full consciousness. When she could sit up, she at once cried out for Lambert. The scientist had recovered enough to rise to his feet and staggered towards her. "'Here I am, darling,' he said. "'John, we're alive. We're back in the laboratory.' "'Ah, Lambert, glad to see you.' A heavy voice spoke, and Lambert for the first time noticed the black-clad figure which stood to one side near the switchboard, hidden by a large piece of apparatus. "'Dr. Morgan!' cried Lambert. Althaus Morgan, the renowned physicist, came forward calmly with an outstretched hand. "'So you realised your great ambition, eh?' he said curiously. "'But where would you be if I had not been able to bring you back?' "'In hell, or hell's dimension, anyway,' said Lambert. He went to Madge, took her in his arms. Darling, we are safe. Morgan has managed to rematerialize us. We will never again be cast into the void in this way. I shall destroy the apparatus and my notes. Doherty, who had been out of the room on some errand, came into the laboratory. He shouted when he saw Lambert standing before him. So you got him, he cried. Where was he hiding? 
His eyes fell upon Madge Crawford then, and he exclaimed in satisfaction, You found her, eh? No, said Phillips. They came back. They suddenly appeared out of nothing, Doherty. Don't kid me, growled Doherty. They were hiding in a closet somewhere. Maybe they can fool you guys, but not me. Lambert spoke to Phillips. I'm starving to death, and I think Miss Crawford must be too. Will you tell Felix to bring us some food? Plenty of it. One of the sleuths went to the kitchen to give the order. Lambert turned to Morgan. How did you manage to bring us back? He asked. Morgan shrugged. It was all guesswork at the last. I at first could check the apparatus by your notes, and this took some time. You know you have written me in detail about what you were working on, so when I was summoned by Detective Phillips, who said you had mentioned my name to him as the only one who could help, I could make a good conjecture as to what had occurred. I heard the stories of all concerned, and realised that you must have dematerialised Miss Crawford by mistake, and then, unable to bring her back, had followed her yourself. I put on your insulation outfit and went to work. I have not left here for a moment, but have snatched an hour or two of sleep from time to time. Detective Phillips has been very good and helpful. Finally, I had everything in shape, but I reversed the apparatus in vital spots, and tried each combination until suddenly, a few minutes ago, you were rematerialized. It was a desperate chance, but I was forced to take it in an endeavour to save you. Lambert held out his hand to his friend. I can never thank you enough, he said gratefully. You saved us from a horrible fate. But you speak as though we had been gone a long while. Was it many hours? Hours? repeated Morgan, his lips parting under his black beard. Man, it was eight days. You've been gone since a week ago last night. Lambert turned to Phillips. I must ask you not to release this story to the newspapers, he begged. Philip smiled and turned up his hands in a gesture of frank wonder. Professor Lambert, he said, I can't believe what I have seen myself. If I told such a yarn to the reporters, they'd never forget it. They'd kid me out of the department. Ah, they were hiding in a closet, growled Doherty. Come on, we've wasted too much time on this job already. Just a couple of nuts, says I. The sleuths, after Phillips had shaken hands with Lambert, left the laboratory. Morgan, a large man of middle age, joined them in a meal, which Felix served to the three on a folding table brought in for the purpose. Felix was terribly glad to see Madge and Lambert again, and manifested his joy by many bobs and leaps as he waited upon them. A grin spread across his face from ear to ear. Morgan asked innumerable questions. They described as best they could what they could recall of the strange dominion in which they had been, and the physicist listened intently. "'It is some hell's dimension, as you call it,' he said at last. "'Where it is, or exactly what, I cannot say,' said Lambert. "'I surely have no desire to return to that world of hate.' Madge, happy now, smiled at him and he leaned over and kissed her tenderly. "'We have come from hell, together,' said Lambert. "'And now we are in heaven.'
End of part two. And end of Hell's Dimension by Tom Curry.